0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Hal Luftig with my Broadway Podcast Network show, Broadway Biz, where every episode I will chat with my friends, some of the top theater professionals in the business, about the business of Broadway. Come join the Broadway. Match. You'll be all the rage from the pitch to the stage. In no time you'll know the business of show the greatest job there is. So join our squad
0: as we all love takes Broadway biz. Let's get busy with the Broadway biz.
1: My guest today is Rick Miramontes. Rick is the president of DKC O&M, which represents everything public relations and press for Broadway and off-Broadway. And I have to tell you a little secret. Rick throws the absolute best Tony party in New York. I can't wait to speak with Rick about all things press today on
0: Broadway Biz. Hell, hell. Hey, Rick. I'm so glad you have this show. I will be tuning in. So will I. So that's
1: two listeners I have thus far. <laughs> of all my guests, Rick is sure to have the wackiest stories from behind the scenes.
0: Oh, I completely remember uh, yeah. the, the Tony Awards evening where Kinky Boots won. And what I do remember was, it wasn't to us, but other people thought it was a real upset, which is the most fun. And I seem to remember we stayed up until sunrise.
1: You took the words out of mouth. I (laughs) was going to ask you if you remembered
0: that, I know I'm
1: dating myself, uh, listeners, but uh, we stayed up until the the actual print copy of the New York Times came out, which had to be about 4 a.m., and somebody brought it into the party. That's right. And showed it to me. And like, I just, you know, the the headline was Kinky Boots, dances its Way to the Top. And I just like burst into tears. And Billy Porter was standing right next to me. We took that famous photograph of Billy and I.
0: Exactly right.
1: Um, And I will tell you this. I did get in trouble when I got home because it was (laughs) the, the last time, I assure you, that I came home after the sun had long
0: come up. It was, it was... It was probably many years fun. ago. Well, I'm glad yeah. you brought that up, and I wear that hell like a badge of honor.
1: Good. Me too. Me <laughs> too. It, it is, it is really, uh, it was one of the best nights of my life. And, uh, I just have to say, you throw the best party. It is, it is the party to be at. I, I gotta admit. So I'm Thank always you. thankful and, uh, sometimes impressed that i made the list (laughs) so thank you for that so hey rick let's just jump right in i know a lot of people want to know uh sometimes me too (laughs) what does a press agent do actually
0: you know it's really funny that question hell because it's it's what we do is so ephemeral you know i still have family members who ask very politely what is it That you do actually for a living. So I think the technical um, uh, definition of what a press agent is, is the person who procures attention via the media for a production. And the, the, the difference between press and advertising is what we're supposed to do is garner that attention technically for free advertising placement you pay for you pay for the time on tv that your ad agency procures of those print ads anything that we generate via that media is meant to be free
1: but as we know it's not always um sometimes you get us on uh, abc good morning or you right know, right you- are. Uh, sometimes you get a show uh, into the Macy's Day Parade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. Sometimes you, I know, working with you, you have suggested uh, spending a certain amount of money yeah. towards a certain event. Um, how do those things, uh maybe you can clarify what some of those things are? Um, how do those things actually impact uh, what you have to bring to a producer?
0: Yeah. And,
1: and uh, you know, knowing that it affects somehow their budget.
0: Sure. Well, I, th- that's a great question because I put the word free. I, I put air quotes around the word free because nothing in life is free. Um, but I think I would explain those expenses. And, and sometimes, you know, what you just dis, uh, mentioned goes into the six figures. So it's it's very costly. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you cannot do to procure that kind of attention is buy it. It is literally priceless. It is it is sometimes news driven. It is a performance that you would never have in any kind of advertising um, arena. And even though there are costs associated with absolutely getting somebody getting a production on the Colbert Show, because what people don't know is, in this day and age, the production usually pays full freight for the expense of those appearances, which can be very costly between carting the cast, rehearsing the cast, and paying the cast the requisite. uh, For example, on The Tonight Show or um, uh, Stephen Colbert's show, there are after fees attached to that. So the price tag is pretty high. But what I always say about anything that we... The PR office delivers that coverage is literally priceless because you could not buy it, you could yeah. not advertise.
1: I, I completely agree. And here's another known thing that I just want to mention to our listeners: uh, because you talk about free, um, going on the Tony Awards is absolutely not free.
0: It's extremely oh. pricey, and every year. It's fun to have those conversations because you're talking about well into the six figures. And the other thing that people don't realize is that you have to on the week of the Tony Awards, besides the nerves, you know, going crazy and actors getting their dress-nominated actors getting their dresses together. They have to do their eight shows a week, and they have to rehearse the hell out of the Tony appearance, the Tony number. So it's really fun to have those debates with um, our colleagues. Is this really worth it? And again, I say it's absolutely worth it because you're only up there because you are worthy for a Tony Award. That's a very big message. And again, even though there is a six-figure dollar amount attached to that appearance and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, that moment is literally priceless because I do think the perch on the Tony Awards is the biggest quote-unquote commercial a show could have in the life of its show. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. Have you ever gotten, uh, without naming names, have you ever gotten pushback from a producer or a uh, or general manager who have said to you, I hear you, Rick, but, um, you know, we just don't have the money for the Tony Awards or, or, you know, we don't have a snowball's chance of winning. Why are we doing this? That kind of thing.
0: I think we've come close and I think maybe I didn't succeed when a show had already closed and the books were closed and where are we going to find that money? Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe I, if I argued in favor of appearing on the Tonys and lost, it might've been once, but uh, there have also been occasions where, you know, the producers found that money to appear on the Tony awards and it was a good call. It was either for pride. It was for the legacy of the show or even though you're not on Broadway, as you know, there's still some business stream out there for a show. And again, the Tony's, you know, very important to participate. I'm sure, though, that those appearances were very truncated and it didn't involve a complete cast.
1: Do you think, um, you know, for people who are opening shows, uh, you know, is I'm going to say in the spring when the Tony mm-hmm. novels Coming up, mm-hmm. as opposed to the fall, because if you're running, you can accrue money for that. But do you think that producers uh, in the in the spring should actually squirrel away money or have money in their production budget specifically for those type
0: of appearances? Absolutely. I th- I think you know it's such a, a competitive media landscape that when we are fortunate enough to secure appearances uh, on national television that are going to cost, you know, money um, and uh, knock wood lucky enough to be on the Tony Awards. I think it's it's incumbent on the show to put their best foot forward and that's going to cost money. And I think that should be anticipated, particularly in the spring when the competition is about as stiff as it can be.
1: Do do many producers, Rick, ever uh, confer with you or show you the production budget and ask your opinion?
0: Yeah, yeah. More and more, uh, we are asked to submit a budget. What is our wish list? What do we think we need to spend? Mm-hmm. And it usually jibes with what the producers are thinking, but I think it's a very helpful collaboration um and it's if there are any surprises they're discovered then in advance Mm -hmm. and yeah sometimes i have to say you know guys we need x amount of dollars more because i think this is going to happen and when the offer comes you're going to want to be able to do it
1: Mm -hmm. um
0: yeah so that's that's how it goes down these days which is very effective it wasn't always that way
1: yeah i i don't remember getting those lists from you because usually when i do i pass out (laughs)
0: <laughs> but you're also, but you're also the kind of producer who just has the heart to say, if we're like hell, come on, we got to do it. You're like, I get it, absolutely, yeah. of course, we got to do it, and you'll find that money.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, one of my my wackiest, and this is just to give the listeners a. Uh, A a, a spectrum of of what some of the things that you create um, and and I think you're one of the most creative in that way, is on the same night and day we had an interview on um, uh, ABC with Cindy Lauper Mm -hmm. who took the reporter backstage and um, showed her the, the theater and backstage and then she said that wonderful statement about, you know, I've looked my whole life, and it was right in my own backyard. And she started to to cry oh. you know, a little bit. That same afternoon, you had made a deal with the Brooklyn Diner that we were going to have a twelve inch uh, Frank hot dog, frankfurter, called the Harvey Firestein, and of. Of course, you know, uh, we got the place filled and we were handing out free hot dogs. And Harvey, in his inimitable way, looked right at the camera and he said, wow, it's been a long time since I've had 12 inches in my mouth.
0: I mean, I, Hal, I'm glad you remembered that. It was a magnificent day, and that's kind of when I thought, how can Kinky Boots lose? Because you've got Cyndi Lauper, who was Madonna before Madonna was Madonna, Ooh, you know, basically saying, the highlight of my life in my career is this moment, and I'm a New York girl. And then you have Harvey, who actually, during that production, took a back seat so Cindy could be the yes. lead, which is usually not the position Harvey's in and he still gave us the full Harvey because as I recall, it was after a Wednesday matinee. So yeah. his ladies, his 60 plus year old ladies were in that audience and he came out and invited all those ladies to go down the street to 43rd street and Broadway and have the Harvey hot dog. Uh, and it was also the day, if you recall, where the Anthony Weiner um, video photo thing blew up. So Harvey's five minute speech on the stage after a matinee was about as blue as blue could be. And those ladies loved it. It was an exciting moment.
1: How did you become a press agent? And that was that something you always wanted to do? or Talk a little bit how
0: that. You know, it's really funny. I'm in the theater, especially at a moment like this. Which, by the way, we we did not leave New York City. We're hunkered down. I, I, I if anybody hasn't read Michael Shulman's great piece uh, in the New Yorker with Fran Lebo, it's everything she said. I agree with. Anyway, mm-hmm. I uh, my life's ambition was not to be in the theater. My life's ambition was to live in New York. I'm from L.A. And my goal in life was to live in New York. That was it. And uh, one year, my sweet cousin, as a birthday gift, gave me a subscription to New York Magazine. And on the cover one week was um, an advance on the Stephen Schwartz musical Working. And it was pages on people working on working, behind the scenes, jobs you didn't know about. And there was a page... On the press agent of working, a very, a very famous woman named Betty Lee Hunt. She explained what she did, and I thought, that is the job for me um because and it turned out to be true what the the, what what our purview is a 360 degree view of the theater ours is the only job description where you were involved with every single person having to do with the show from the producer to the director to the writers to the actors to the backstage crew to the front of house crew to the ushers to the media and the audience and Mm -hmm. that was very attractive to me and it turned out to be exactly as um I interpreted it from uh, New York Magazine whenever that was. Wow.
1: So so let me ask you a question having read that like how and and what inspires you or how do you come up with what a uh, a marketing campaign will be from the from the obvious like we're going to go to news shows or morning shows uh-huh. to the wacky to the uh, wacky Yeah,
0: stage. I I think the overriding principle for me And it suits me and it's probably if I do something that lands in the success column is because I'm a great audience member and I'm a fan. And so I tap into the things, the tools that we have, which are media opportunities, TV, news coverage, newspapers, online now. But I tap into them with the enthusiasm of a fan and I look at it from that perspective. Point of view. What makes this show exciting? And you know, it's very easy for me to represent a show and I do get this question. What about a show that's a dud, a show that you don't particularly like? It's like having a child or like having a pet. You can love all of your shows. And that's a very easy thing for me to do because I come at it with the enthusiasm of a fan. And there's always somebody who loves your show.
1: That's true. That's true. So, You know, you raise an interesting question. Can you talk to me about the process of how you look at each show, not just the ones you love, but even the ones you do love and how you figure out, okay, this is what we're gonna do. This is what will work for that particular show.
0: I love that question because it's really my favorite challenge and that goes for the shows that have a lot of uh, deficiencies as well as the shows that are obvious hits, you know, on paper. Um, I I look at and I identify what is the biggest liability that this show possesses. And my challenge, and it's kind of a little game, is to make that liability the best asset for the show. And it's not a foolproof, you know, success story, but it's worked a lot. And the obvious um, uh, poster child of that example is Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. We took all of the negatives and we batted them back like in a fabulous tennis match at the u.s open and and attempted to make all of those negatives a positive and i think um we succeeded more than we failed
1: i agree with that i I do think as i said at the top of the program I, i thought that was one of the most brilliant brilliant, uh, campaigns that I've seen in a very long time, because, uh, you would just think, um, okay, this is it. This is the one that's going to nail them in the coffin and, you know, and then you would, boom, you would come back and turn, you know, something that was so bad into a, into a
0: positive. So, yeah, and I and I think what we do, I think sp- I was good for Spider-Man and vice versa quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um uh because Spider-Man needed what we do as PR person in the most ephemeral sense of what PR is. I really responded to that show and we my whole office, we went the distance for that show because we felt like we had to protect and support and buoy those performers who were in it because it was obviously a challenge. It was a dangerous show. It was a joke to people, but these guys were doing their show, all fantastic performers. And, you know, for months, as you know, they were rehearsing one show by day and doing their other show by night and having to take the slings and arrows of the media. And I felt very protective of them. And I think that's what we in our industry do. That is really sort of not, um, not really known, and I think it's part of the job description. Ephemeral, though it is.
1: Ooh, which is hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you ever get the question again, like a Spider Man or a show that uh, maybe you know struggling? Do you ever get the question of Rick? How can we quantify whether your campaign is actually moving the t- needle in terms of selling tickets?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, I and there have been heated conversations at times, depending on, you know, where in the life of a show it it is, Um because I lean on the ephemeral quality of what we do. You know, I think the advertising agency, they have it harder than we do because you spend X amount of dollars and they give you some statistics that quantify whether or not what they just did is happening or it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, what we do cannot be quantified in a way. So I think there is no measure for what we do, which which is unfortunate in a way, which is why you have to really trust and have an understanding, or the producer really has to trust you because there are no metrics to measure what you're doing. You you go by vibrations because what we do is elicit a response from an audience, elicit a feeling from an audience. Now, if the audience doesn't come, and you know, look, Hal, as you know, I will be the first one to take credit if something goes well, so I will absolutely take the blame if the audiences aren't coming. But there's there's no way to measure in the same way that you do with advertising what we do in PR.
1: How has the digital age, how has things like the internet and you know and chat rooms and all those kinds of things affected uh uh you know what you do? I mean there was a time that all you know everything was either in the paper or
0: you know somehow got a, got a Piece on like page six or something. Sure. Molding a message for maximum effect. I'm not saying making something up, but just presenting it in the most savory way mm-hmm. is something that we do. And if we don't have as much control over that, it's going to be a an issue. You know, it's it, the message is going to get watered down in chat boards and everybody being a critic and all this online, you know, um, Euphoria can help, but much of the time it gets in the way. That's one. And number two, you have to respond instantly, like you're running a political campaign. It was really fascinating that, and I'm trying to remember the sequence, but evo um, van Hove gave an initial re- interview to Vogue um, about West Side Story. And uh, it was for, let's say, it was for the December issue. And we were going to begin in November issue. We were beginning previews in November, blah, blah, blah. That story by Adam Green, which was pretty good. You know, it was a really solid Adam Green Vogue story, had two tidbits that Evo didn't even think about. He just gave him the, the facts. They are cutting the Somewhere Ballet, and I Feel Pretty will not be in the show. Well, in 20 minutes that all over the world on chat boards and every other major media outlet picked up before I could take a shower, the notion that I feel pretty is not in the show. And that became a five alarm fire instantly that it became a five alarm fire was, was amusing to me, but there was, we were, we were immediately responding to that or in our case, not responding, but you know uh, getting a little anxious over that. And yeah. that's what happens now that would normally not have happened 15 years ago.
1: Right. Right. That's that. You know, that is true. Or talk a little bit, if you can, about um, a show is in its first or second preview. And before, you know, the intermission happens, yep. people are already tweeting or, or, or on the chat board or, you know, um, you know, this is great or this is awful or stuff like that. And and we do know people read it. I mean, I don't mean to to, to minimize, you know, those things at all. People do read it. And um, I believe we live in an age now where people read things and they believe be, them. In fact, you know, I won't mention a certain person in the White House, but, you know, <laughs> they read this. And they say, oh, well, I read it, you know, where they read it doesn't matter. But I read it, so it must be true. How do you, as a show is like being birthed, what are some of the things you do to to combat or do you do nothing? And what what do you do about stuff like Mm -hmm. that?
0: Well, normally, that's a good question. Normally, I would say back in the day, whenever the day was, we would lay back and our campaigns would be very linear and we would let the preview period be what it was meant for a collaboration between the audience's feedback and what's happening on stage. You know, it takes such skill and a little magic to get your show from first preview to frozen to opening night and that's a very valuable important time and yeah. that isn't that isn't the time for us to pile on publicity duties on the creatives the cast or you the producer however these days because it's such a rapid response game we have to have a whole mini campaign to respond to, to sense, to taste the, you know, the reaction to what you know people write about, seeing a preview online. What the world doesn't understand is we're in a unique position, some t- albeit sometimes an uncomfortable position, where we are valuable. We get paid by the producer to do our job, but our value, I think, comes from our contacts with the press. And we ha- so, and we are valuable to the press in turn because we service them in a different way, but like we service the producers.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're
0: sort of in the middle. So we have to have a relationship, a very clean relationship with critics and editors and writers um, to be valuable to you and to be able to do our job for you. And yes, that's being right in the middle of something sometimes when you don't want to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you think it would be helpful, uh, and I, I'll tell you why I asked this, if if critics uh, were more involved in observing the process? Yes, yes. Uh, I,
0: th- I think critics should see a show twice before they review, for starters. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm completely down with that. I think a critic who is not engaged um, uh, you know, in ways that we can enumerate Uh, allows them to not be engaged with the show that they're reviewing. And let's be honest, they review a lot of plays and musicals and they're under deadlines. And if it's not their thing on that night, you know, you're going to, that's going to be reflected in the review. And I think that's unfair to the artistry that brought the piece to the stage. Right.
1: Right. I've always thought that, you know, I mean, they are human, Um, absolutely uh, you know and they go to see a ton of things how do you know you know that night they didn't have a headache or stomach ache or you know have a fight with their spouse or something you know that you know the human it can't not affect uh how they see that particular show right it must and yeah you know that that they they should you may be sitting on a rehearsal or two so they can see how it's created. Not that that's going to change their ultimate, ultimate opinion of it, overall opinion of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I remember when we were doing Moving Out and and Sylvie Gold, who was a dance critic, actually sat in on several rehearsals and watched Twyla's process. Yeah. And, and, and it, it was turned out to be incredibly informative, and I, I wonder if you think that that will be kind of a, a something that eventually you know uh, theater critics might consider doing
0: well i you won't know. name names but there are critics and and usually it has to do with an out of town engagement when something is just getting on its feet and mm. they have to be engaged with the show more than just seeing it on its opening night on broad for its opening night on broadway um that's always proven to me Win, lose, or draw for us to be really instructive because they are completely informed, and even if they don't like everything they see or everything about the show, they're extremely constructive. And you know, whatever that yeah. assignment is, I'd love that to be everybody's assignment.
1: Yeah, I, I, I I'm with you. Let's get them in. Um, so, so in speaking about reviews. It's, I'm sure it's easy. We've all been in that meeting where, you know, the day after a show opens, uh, everyone sits down in the ad agency and when everything is a rave, it's like, you know, which rave is better? But more totally. often than not, the reviews are negative or mixed to negative, and the important ones are negative. How do you, uh, as the press, and you're always there, you've yep. been in meetings where you're the cheerleader, <laughs> Mm-hmm. leader because mm-hmm. everyone else is in a state of shock. How do you, how does that affect you? How do you uh, figure out and, and 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 truthfully find a way to pull quotes that, you know, may be negative, but spin them in a way that they're not?
0: Well, let's go to the worst case scenario. Um, and mercifully, I don't remember specifically being in the situation, but we have both been in this situation where the reviews are... Terrible, let's just say terrible, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Uh, what I encourage is is for the reviews to absolutely, the quotes to absolutely reflect the, the most energetic attributes of the show. And if the quotes aren't there, then I probably have, because I would do in a meeting, encourage us to go in another direction And um, that other direction could be, well, let's make our own copy that feels exciting, that reflects the nature of the show and doesn't rely on quotes. If the quotes are mediocre or, you know, from sources that are not your top line, because I think audiences are smart enough to know if there isn't a New York Times quote or a media source that they trust, they could read between the line. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's throwing good money after bad.
1: From the perspective of a press agent, Mm -hmm. and I'm not fishing here—I swear to God—but if you happen to like, you know, give throw a couple of bones my way, I wouldn't complain. When you start working on a show, you're working most closely with the producer. He, 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 or she—I'm sure—has a very strong opinion yep. on what you should be doing and what they want to see and and how come we're not getting that, Rick, and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. In your opinion, in that regard, what does make a good producer to work with
0: for you? uh, That's a very easy one and I will use you as the example and I'll be very specific. I like working with the producers I have worked with before. And while at the time there may be a project that was not successful, I think it is very important that you go through through the, the, the ride of life on Broadway with the producer, where you, of course, aim for successes and you have successes and you have big successes, but you learn more from the ones that aren't successes. <laughs> and I think it, it it accrues this sense of trust where you really don't have to go to go through the business of, are they doing this right or are they not doing this right? I don't really understand where Rick is coming from, but I trust him. And I think yeah. we have to get to that place. And I remember when we got to that place, because we were working on Kinky Boots. And it was very early in the life of the show. And I think we were in Chicago. Yeah. And sales weren't great because you have a title like Kinky Boots and right. a right. show that is unknown. Um, right. And all we had was the firm belief that this was a, not only a hit, but a smash hit. But you needed to work it. And, you know, you were nervous because it wasn't happening at that moment, whatever it was. And I do remember you bought me a very nice steak at the Palm, but you were nervous. So the next day to address whatever it was that you said, and I don't remember it specifically, um, we came and sat down with you and Daryl and whipped up a 10 page, um, uh, game plan for the show. And, you know, it wasn't revelatory, but we walked you through we've got this and this is what we're going to do from now through the opening on Broadway and into award season, because there were, there were months there that were dormant. Um, And it was a pretty good document because we had it, you know, we, we knew what the attributes of the show were and we had a game plan and we walked you through it and you said, you know, it was really like, okay, thank you for explaining. I get it. Good. And we never had a problem since, and we have now used that for every show. We create a document, we create the game plan and the, the, the actual plan, we put it on paper, We meet with the producers like we did with you and Daryl in Chicago that day. And then we stick it in a drawer and we pull it out of the drawer months later. And usually we have followed that plan um, step by step. And usually it works. And I think the main thing that we got out of that was not only that you made us do that, but also that we we gained your trust. And you don't really doubt me. Even when I say, hell, let's do this crazy damn thing. You're like, fine, do it. Actually, you want it. Yeah, that well,
1: <laughs> that that is true because you you've come up with some stuff
0: that you know it's made my head spin. But I thought, you know what?
1: Why not? <laughs> yeah,
0: and having a producer's trust, and a producer's <laughs> trust is gained by the producer telling us what they need in the way that they need it is the most crucial thing besides working with them, you know, because you become a family and that's always more fun and yeah. more fun begets more fun and more success.
1: Yeah. That, that, you know what, that's very true. So, you know, thank you for that. I do remember, I just wanted to be full disclosure to, to the listeners. I do remember after that dinner, me asking you, uh, we were staying in a hotel that, you know, the hotel windows now don't open all the way because of liability. Oh, yeah. uh, so they open a couple of inches. And I do remember asking you, um, hey, Rick, how much weight do you think I need to lose so I can fit through that window? <laughs> that <laughs> And was- you just said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was
0: a real nail biter that, that you know, because it was a real old school out of town yeah. tryout with a show that was an original based on a frankly obscure, but beloved movie, right. and it could easily have worked and it could easily have not yeah. worked. And a lot of work was required to get it into the shape that everybody knows Kinky Boots to be. Yeah. And so that was pretty good producing, uh, congratulations.
1: Well, thanks, but we did it together.
0: You know, loved, it. loved
1: we, it. Yeah. Well, Rick, you know what? It's been so much fun talking to you today. But as they say, all good things must come to an end. But
0: before
1: I let you go, before we finish, I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask them, and I'd love for you to just say the first thing that that pops into your mind. Okay. Don't overthink. Don't do. Okay. So here's the first one What is your favorite musical?
0: Evita, I saw the original production coming from Los Angeles um, 15 times at the Music Center and several times on Broadway.
1: Great answer. I love that too. As you know, what was
0: the wackiest
1: moment you experienced in the theater?
0: Ooh. Wackiest moment in the theater, it was an exciting moment. It was my very, 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 very first any kind of job. I was Richard Kornberg's emissary in Los Angeles for the launch of Joe Papp's Pirates of Penzance tour. Oh and Pam Dauber was Mabel. Um, Andy Gibb was Frederick. It was a great cast, but it was the final performance at the Amundsen Theater in the summer of whenever that was. And... um, Caroline Payton, and I forgot the other person, but the standby and the understudy, everybody's sick, Pam's sick, and everybody was panicked. And I'd never been around showbiz like that to, you know, the show must go on. How the hell are we going to do this? Kind of panicked. You know, I did wouldn't go backstage because it was way too tense there. And I stood in the back of the house for that announcement. They said, ladies and gentlemen, this performance, the role of Mabel usually played by pam and everybody was a mork and mindy fan they were groaning and groaning will be played by miss linda ronstadt she had come from malibu to do the performance pristine performance that and she was the queen of rock and roll then the crowd went insane and i thought wow this is maybe the most exciting thing i've ever experienced in my life and god that was crazy
1: Wow. Wow. Well, this may that is a great story. And uh uh, you know, I love it because that that that's you know, when that happens, I know to go crazy. Um so this the last one may be a little difficult. The question is, and the lesson you learned from that was
0: You get the show on. You come up with a solution to make the show happen. A canceled show is the most rare thing. It's the thing I love about the theater, that there is always a solution and there is always a way to get the show on. And, you know, quite honestly, at at the moment in which we're living and the challenges we're going to face, I feel Broadway is going to be a leader in bringing New York back to the world.
1: Bravo, Rick. Bravo and And you know what? The important takeaway from your sentence, Broadway mm. will be back. Oh, here, here. Back. yeah. Um, so I, I just want to take you know a moment and to thank you, Rick. This has been so much fun and really informative.
0: Thank you. I thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy that you're doing this, and uh, as the audience knows, I love working with you.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Broadway Biz. If you have any questions about today's episode or the business of Broadway in general, let me know on Instagram at BroadwayBizPodcast or via email at Biz at HalLuftig.com. Be sure to follow me at Broadway biz Podcast for updates on everything Broadway Biz, the business of Broadway. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Huge thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Brittany Bigelow. This has been produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor, and edited by Derek Gunther. Our fabulous theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Lawrence O'Keefe. To learn more about Broadway Biz, visit bpn.fm slash broadwaybiz.